unmuted myself. Good morning. How are you? Uh, my name is Adam. If you don't know me, it's really great to have you with us today and it's great to be able to open up God's Word together. Now, I want to begin with this. Now, I don't recommend you do this, but if you were to look at the ingredients on a humble beef sausage, I'm not talking about you know South African divorce because we all know that's amazing and it doesn't have anything bad in it, but I'm talking about the average beef sausage that you would get from Woolies or Coles. If you were to look at the ingredients list, you might be surprised at what you would find. So, for instance, the first ingredient on the list of the beef sausage is Australian meat. And then in brackets, it says beef and lamb. And then in brackets again, 73%. Now, that leaves you with a couple of important questions. Firstly, how did the lamb get into the beef sausage? And secondly, what the heck is the other 27%? If you were to read on in the ingredients list, it would tell you that the beef sausage also includes rice flour, potato starch, salt, hydrolyzed vegetable protein. Yum. Who doesn't love a bit of hydrolyzed vegetable protein? You go on, it says preservative, sugar, spice extract, and here's the cherry on top. Edible collagen casing. Don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound very tasty. Now, my point is not to turn you off sausages, because how would Aussies raise money without the sausage sizzle? And more importantly, what would people even do at Bunnings? But my point is that the beef sausage is not like steak. It's not pure meat. It's meat mixed in with a whole lot of other ingredients to produce a meat-like product. It's not pure meat, it's meat-like. And the reason that I tell you all of this is because many of us are tempted to build our faith like we build a beef sausage. We take a little bit of this, we take a little bit of that, we think God must be like this, but God can't be like that. This is popular at the moment, so God must not have said that. This isn't popular at the moment, so God surely says this. We take all of these different ideas and influences and we mix them all together. And the result is that a faith that is not only sometimes confused about who God is, but oftentimes inaccurately understands who God is and so wrongly relates to God. An extreme example of this would be Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was one of the founding fathers of the United States of America. He had some strange ideas about God and so he literally took a knife to the Bible and cut out all the passages that he didn't like, that he didn't agree with and he literally created a God and a Bible that he could come at. Now that's one way to deal with the difficult passages, sure, And we might not be so bold and brazen as Thomas Jefferson was, but we must admit we all often like to edit God. We like to think in our minds, well, God is like this and God can't be like that. I think God is this and God's not that. But the truth is, if God exists, we don't get to define who he is. We don't get to say what he's like. He tells us who he is and he tells us what he is like. And listen to me. We will only live our lives and our faith rightly if we rightly understand who God is. 
This is the way that one author put it, A.W. Tozer. John shared part of this quote with us a, a few weeks ago. He says, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says, the most significant fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And I wonder what you think God is like deep down in your heart. You know those moments when no one's looking, it's just you. What do you think God is like? I wonder if that's right and true and accurate. Or I wonder if it's something that you've inherited or assumed or made up. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what A.W. Tozer is saying in this quote is simply that theology matters. Theology Matters. Now, theology is simply the study of God. It's coming to know and understand who God is and what He is like. Now, this sounds like something that Christians would, would kind of get excited about, but let's be honest, theology has a little bit of a bad rap in the church. And sometimes it can be for good reasons. I mean, we've probably all met people who delight in debating obscure points of doctrine. We've probably all met people who delight in being right rather than seeking to understand. And so theology sometimes can seem divisive and irrelevant and uninteresting. And this is why you'll hear Christians say things like, well, we don't really need theology, we just need experience. We don't really need more doctrine, we just need to know what to do. And I understand this view, I mean, I get it. We need to ensure that we don't just know about God, but that we know God. We need a a faith that moves from our head to our hearts. But listen to me, it is spiritually dangerous and it is dishonouring to God to downplay theology and to dismiss doctrine. Because what we believe about God drives the way we relate to God. Well, let me say it this way. What we believe about God in our heads will become entrenched in our hearts, which will drive our hands, our feet, our mouths, our entire lives. We need a right understanding of God. And if, you, if you're not convinced yet, then I hope and pray that by the end of today that you will be. See, at the moment, we're on a, a journey through the Old Testament book of Judges. And Judges tells us about a time in the history of God's people when things were pretty dark. God's people repeatedly rebelled against him. They repeatedly found themselves enslaved and God repeatedly raised up deliverers called judges to rescue them. And today we come to the story of a judge by the name of Jephthah. And in the life and example of Jephthah, we are going to see a vivid illustration of the importance of rightly understanding and knowing God. You see, Jephthah had a sausage-like faith. He had a little bit of the meat of genuine faith in God, but he had mixed in a whole lot of other ingredients from his culture. And what we're going to see is it had some horrific, tragic results. So we'll look at the story of Jephthah under two headings, two simple headings. What happens and what do we learn? Let's look at the first thing. What happens with the story of Jephthah? 
Well, it begins in chapter 10 of the book of Judges and it begins with the predictable cycle of rebellion. God's people rebel against him. They end up enslaved to a people group called the Ammonites and so they cry out to God for his help. Now, God responds to his people in this instance in a new way, in a surprising way. And on the surface, you might even think it's a little bit harsh. Look at what happens in Judges chapter 10, verses 11 10 to 14. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals, the Canaanite gods. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, You have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And so for the first time in the book of Judges, God says, no, that's enough. Not anymore. Now why? What has brought God to this point? Well, the answer is the people of Israel are regretful but not repentant. See, they cry out to God not because they're repentant over their sin, their idolatry, their worship of false gods. They are regretful over the consequences of their sin, their slavery. In other words, they want God's help, but they don't really want God. And God knows this because he has graciously rescued them again and again and again and again and again and again they have turned from him. And God says, that's enough, no more. And you see, God is teaching them and he's teaching us a very important lesson here. And it's the lesson that we learned a couple of weeks ago, that God is not an ambulance, he's a loving father. See, God is allowing the Israelites to experience the foolishness of their actions. He's saying, you've chosen to worship these other false gods? Well, go for it. Go and ask them to save you. See how that works out for you. He's teaching them a lesson that we all need to learn. The emptiness of our idols. See, an idol is not just a statue that we bow down to. An idol is anything other than God that we look to for security, for significance, for salvation. Maybe it's money in the bank, financial security for us. Maybe it's the way we look. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's another person. Idols can be many, many varied things. But when you are in a time of deep distress, deep suffering, deep anguish, what do you discover about your idols? They are absolutely powerless to save you. They have nothing to offer you in that moment of deep distress. What good is money in the bank when you are in deep anguish? What good is chiseled abs when you are in deep suffering? Our idols are powerless to save us. And God loves us so much that sometimes he allows us to experience the consequence of our actions and the inability of our idols to save us. And this is what he's doing here for the Israelites. And this response from God obviously shakes them up a little bit and they obviously get it because their response in verse 15 is very different to their response in verse 10. Look at what they say. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. In verse 10 they said to God, God, we want peace from you. In verse 15, they say, God, we want peace with you. Even if that means we will continue to suffer. And this is real repentance. This is true repentance. 
Lord, I don't care if my life gets easy or if it gets hard. I just want you. And God responds to his repentant, oppressed people with mercy. Look at what we read in the second half of verse 16. A very peculiar phrase. And he became, this is God, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now that's an odd phrase, but it literally means he could bear the suffering of Israel no longer. What a profound truth that this reveals to us about God. When his people suffer, he suffers. When they hurt, he hurts. And the compassion of God, the love of God moves him to action. He raises up another deliverer to rescue his people from oppression. And it's here that we meet Jephthah. Look what we learn about Jephthah in verses 1 to 3 of Judges chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And so once again, we see that Jephthah is a very unlikely candidate to be the deliverer of God's people. I mean, look at what we learn about him. He was an illegitimate son, born to a prostitute. He was an outcast, driven from his home by his half-brothers. He was a gang leader, a mob boss, surrounded by these violent thugs. He seems a very unlikely person to be the deliverer of God's people. Yet this is exactly who he will be. Look at what we read as the story goes on. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, the people of God. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. And so here, the leaders of Gilead eat a little bit of humble pie. And they go back to Jephthah, the mighty warrior, and say, hey, we need your help. Look what Jephthah says to them. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are are in distress? Similar to what God said earlier, Jephthah is saying, hey, you're just using me. You don't really care about me, you only care about what I can do for you. But in verse 8 they reply and they say, no, 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 we're really sorry about what we did in the past and to prove it to you, we'll make you our leader. You can be our commander. You can be in charge. And Jephthah likes the sound of that and so he agrees to come back and to lead the campaign against the Ammonites. But Jephthah, the mighty warrior, he begins his campaign in a surprising way. He doesn't begin with battle. He begins with diplomacy. He attempts to negotiate with the king of the Ammonites. You see, the Ammonites wanted the land where the Israelites were living. They believe it was their land and so they want it back. But Jephthah argues this case with the king of of the Ammonites. And interestingly, or perhaps surprisingly, he argues his case using history and theology. You can read his case in, in chapter 11, but what this tells us about Jephthah is that he was no idiot. He was no meathead. He knew God. He knew about God. He knew the history of God's people. He knew the first five books of the Bible, which he would have had. Jephthah knew some theology. 
And he uses it here to negotiate with the king of the Ammonites. But as the story continues, we see that his negotiation fails. The Ammonites ignore Jephthah's arguments and they decide to attack Israel. So God begins to prepare Jephthah for battle. Look at what we read in verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Jephthah is travelling through these regions, raising up an army. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. God is with him, which means victory is certain. Victory is assured. And this is why what Jephthah does next is so perplexing and so tragic. Look at what we see Jephthah do. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dancers. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. So she, she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. This is an incredibly tragic story and this is one of those stories that makes people say well this is why I don't read the Bible the Bible condones things like violence and and child sacrifice but I want you to notice who is silent in these verses the Lord God does not approve of ask for or condone what happens here This tragedy occurs because of Jephthah's sinful foolishness. And as we'll see, this tragedy occurs because Jephthah had allowed his understanding of God to be influenced by the toxic ingredients of his culture. You see, some commentators try to soften what happened here. They say, well, Jephthah must have expected an animal to to greet him, to come out of the doors first. But animals wouldn't have been kept in the house and so that wouldn't make sense. And besides, the phrase that Jephthah uses in verse 31, to meet me, it suggests that he's anticipating a human encounter. It seems clear that Jephthah meant and carried out human sacrifice. He probably just didn't expect that the first person who would be out of his doors would be his daughter. He probably thought that it would be one of his many servants or maybe one of his gang members. But we have to ask, why did Jephthah even make this vow in the first place? 
And the simple answer is, well, this is how you would please pagan gods. See, the false gods that surrounded Jephthah in that day, to please them, to earn their favour, you would have to offer sacrifices. And the greater the sacrifice, the greater the favour you could earn. And so Jephthah is treating the real God, the true God, like a pagan God. And he thinks that by making this vow of human sacrifice, he can somehow secure God's favour for victory over the Ammonites. But he is terribly misguided. And what he reveals is that he doesn't really know the character of God. God never asks for human sacrifice. In fact, he outright forbids it. In Deuteronomy 18, the Lord had said to the people of Israel, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. This was commonplace practice in that day, and God is saying, it shall not be so among my people. Now, if you're a switched-on Bible reader, you might be thinking, well, what about Abraham? See, in Genesis 22, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. But if you read that account, you'll see that it was a test of Abraham's faith and his obedience. And it was initiated by God, and God never intended it for it to be carried out. See, God provided a ram who would be sacrificed in Isaac's place, foreshadowing the cross and and Jesus. You see, this vow, it was initiated by Jephthah. It wasn't a test of faith or obedience. It was an attempt to twist God's arm. It was an attempt to pay God off. It was an attempt to win God's favour for victory in the battle. And it was completely and totally unnecessary. The Spirit of God was already with Jephthah. God had already chosen to use Jephthah. Victory was certain. But Jephthah had been so influenced by the culture around him. He'd mixed all these other ingredients into his understanding of God. He thought he had to pay God off. He didn't rightly understand God and so he wrongly related to God. And his poor theology led to tragedy. And we look at what Jephthah did and we are rightly horrified by it. But that's just because violence is no longer our idol of choice. See, before we look down on Jephthah too harshly, we should take a look in the mirror. And we should ask ourselves, well, what are our modern day idols? In what ways has our culture influenced our faith and our understanding of God? What ingredients have we mixed in? And I think if we look around, we'd have to admit that two of the dominant idols in our day are sex and money. And let's ask ourselves some difficult questions. What's our attitude towards money? Do we spend all of our money on ourselves and on our families and and see nothing wrong with that? Jesus said to us, he said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, when no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Have we added ingredients into our understanding of money? What about our sexuality? Now, we're all sexually broken. We're all sexual sinners. We all experience disordered sexuality in some way or another. But do you believe your sexuality is something that you are free to define? But you believe that your sexuality and, your, and sex has been given to us by God. And so it's to be defined by God. See, the Apostle Paul, 
in 1 Corinthians 6, at the end of a discussion about sexual immorality, he says, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What ingredients have we mixed into our faith that impacts the way we understand God? And before we shake our heads and look down at Jephthah, we should realise that we're probably more influenced by our culture than we think we are. And this is why Jephthah made his foolish vow. He didn't properly know and understand God. Now maybe you're wondering, well, why did he keep his stupid vow? I mean, it's one thing to make a foolish vow, but it's another thing to keep it. And the answer is he kept his foolish vow for the exact same reason that he made it. He didn't properly know God. He had no grasp of the grace of God. See, Jephthah felt like he had to earn God's favour, earn God's blessing. That's why he made the vow. Now he thinks that if he breaks the vow, God's going to get him. God's going to punish him. One commentator says it this way. He says, he, Jephthah, makes the fundamental error of thinking that God, the divine judge, can be bribed. That salvation isn't an arrangement that can be negotiated by offering God incentives instead of casting ourselves utterly on his mercy. He fails to see that salvation is a gift. See, the truth is, God didn't back then and he doesn't now give us victory, salvation, blessing because we earn it. He gives it to us as a gift of grace. God's grace, God's love, God's favour, it's not a reward for those who deserve it. God's grace is a gift to the undeserving. You and me. This is the way Titus 3 verse 5 puts it. It says, He has saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Now let's just be honest with one another. Most of us think about God more easily like Jephthah did. We think that God's default position towards us is one of anger and we need to appease him. We need to do certain things, say certain things, not do certain things, not say certain things in order to appease God. We feel like we need to make deals with God in order to earn his favour. God, I'll give you this money if you'll give this to me. God, I'll never do that again if you will do this for me. We think God is holding out on us. We think we need to twist God's arm in order for him to bless us and love us and show us favour. And the exact opposite is true. We don't have to negotiate with God. We simply humble ourselves before him and he freely gives us what we have not earned. And Jephthah didn't understand this. He didn't have a true understanding of God. He didn't know that God is a God of grace. And we read this simple conclusion to the life of Jephthah in Judges 12, verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. So what do we learn from the story of Jephthah? We've already applied a few lessons. I just want to point out two quick ones as we close. The first is we need good theology. The story of Jephthah graphically reveals our need for a right understanding of God. We don't just need feel-good theology, we need true theology. See, if we're going to navigate life in this world in all of its complexities, we need more than a sausage-like faith. We need more than just a vague understanding of God. We need a robust, 
solid biblical understanding of who God is so we can relate to him rightly. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it, as usual. He says, he says, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones. See, if you're prone to kind of just dismissing theology and doctrine, then you need to heed the example of Jephthah. J.I. Packer says it this way in Knowing God. He says, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. We need to understand God rightly. Now, how can we do this? Well, the truth is, every time we engage in a Bible study, every time we come to a service on a Sunday, every time we open up God's Word on our own or with others, every time we read a good book or or a good blog post, every time we listen to a good podcast, we are doing theology. We are learning more and discovering more about who God is and what He is like. And every single one of us can take steps to do that. Let me tell you one simple way that I and a few other young men in this church do this. And I've shared this with you before. Every Thursday morning at 6am, I meet with a bunch of other young men. We, come, we go to a nearby cafe where the first one's there. We order coffee. We sit down. We catch up with one another. And then we read a chapter from this book, Concise Theology by J.I. Packer. Chapters are only a couple of pages long. We read it. We discuss it, we ask questions, we throw around thoughts and ideas, we pray for one another and then we go off to work. One hour a week devoted to knowing and understanding God better. We can all take steps to do that because we need good theology. And lastly, what we can learn from the story of Jephthah is we need a better judge. See, the book of Judges points us to our desperate need for a saviour. The book of Judges is filled with saviours, but they're broken saviours. They fail in their mission. They never fully accomplish their mission. And these broken saviours prepare us for and point us to the ultimate saviour, the one who the whole Bible points us to, Jesus Christ. And this includes Jephthah. You see, like Jephthah, who was born illegitimately, Jesus' birth also seemed illegitimate. He was born to an unmarried teenager. Like Jephthah, who attracted scoundrels to himself, Jesus attracted sinners and outcasts to himself. Like Jephthah, who was driven away by his brothers, Jesus was driven away by us. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind. But unlike Jephthah, who had to be persuaded to help his people, We didn't have to run and plead with Jesus to help us. Jesus willingly came from heaven to earth to lay down his life for you and for me. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. See, Jesus didn't demand that we sacrifice our lives for his. He laid down his life for yours and for mine. And the Bible says that this is Love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is the pure meat of Christianity. We don't find favour with God through our extreme sacrifices and our emotional experiences, but through Jesus' once and for all sacrifice on the cross. See, real Christianity is not negotiation. 
It's not giving to God so that he'll give to you. It's not trying to impress God so that he'll love you and accept you. You have nothing to offer God that he doesn't already have. You bring nothing to the table but sin and need. And this is why Christianity is all of grace. Because God freely gives us what we need and what we have not earned. And some of us need to stop negotiating with God. Some of us need to humble ourselves before him, open our hands up and receive by faith what he freely gives and freely wants you to have. Forgiveness, new life and adoption into his family forevermore. This is the pure meat of Christianity. Let's open ourselves up to God and receive what he gives Let me pray. Heavenly Father, there are many of us here this morning who need to stop negotiating with you. We need to stop trying to earn your favour and rest in the favour that Christ won for us upon the cross. Lord, there's others of us that need to start seeking to know you better, to understand you more fully, to receive and walk in the love that you've given us. And Lord, every single one of us in this room, it doesn't matter how we've come in here today, it doesn't matter if we're here for one time only or we've been here for years, Lord, every single one of us needs to humble ourselves before our ultimate Saviour, the Lord Jesus, who freely gives us life and life to the full. And we pray this in his name. Amen. In church, we're going to go out and sing that declaration, sing that he, our God, has saved our soul. Let's stand together. You, my God, have saved my soul.